Chapter Nineteen, Part One of the Fairy Tales of Science by John Cargill Brogue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pluto's Kingdom, Part One, down to the innermost core of this our mother Earth, to the sad realm of shades where Pluto sits enthroned in gloomy majesty, grim king of death, and phlegathontic rills roll waves of lurid fire. There will I lead, and thou wilt follow me. Klopstock. They were brethren three, sons of old time, who shared among them the dominion of the world. Jupiter, the eldest of them, assumed the supreme rule of heaven and earth. To Neptune was given the empire of the sea. Pluto had assigned to his sway the interior of the earth, the realm of death. The name of Pluto is taken from a Greek word signifying wealth, and was therefore most appropriately given to the master of all the hidden treasures of the earth. The Latins called the kingdom of the Infernum Dis, that is, Dives, the wealthy. The gate to the dominions of Pluto was guarded by the many-headed dog, Cerberus. Three heads only, and three necks, are generally given to this marvellous beast. Hesiod, however, the second father of most of these creatures of the imagination, eclept the gods of Greece, gives Cerberus fifty heads, whilst Horus, more bountiful still, supplies him with a hundred of these useful appendages. To get there you had to pass the famous river Styx, or the Sad River. Over this you were ferried by Charon, the son of Hell and Night, for the small consideration of an obolus, an Athenian coin worth about five farthings of our money, which the ancients, for this reason, used to put in the mouths of the dead. But woe unto those shadows whose bodies had had no burial! For a hundred years had they to wander by the side of the river, before they could hope to induce the grim ferryman to carry them over and grim he was this ferryman and far from prepossessing if the portrait drawn of him by virgil may be considered a correct likeness a frightfully ugly old man with glaring eyes and a bushy matted beard a dirty dark-coloured mantle fastened with a knot hanging down from his left shoulder the river styx or the stygian lake as it is also called encircled hell in a sevenfold embrace there dwelt a marvellous power in the name to which even the highest divinities were subject. If any of the gods swore falsely by it, a hundred years' exile from heaven, with loss for that time of all the rights, privileges, and other appurtenances belonging to divinity, punished the perjurer. Four other rivers, besides Styx, flowed through the sad realms of death, the Acheron, the Cochitis, the Phlegathon, and the Lethe. The Phlegathon was a lake of liquid fire. Whoever drank of the waters of the Lethe forgot all that was past. According to the doctrine of the transmigration of souls taught by Pythagoras, in the 6th century B.C., the souls of the departed were made to drink the waters of the Lethe, when quitting the infernal regions to return to the surface of the earth, to animate new bodies there. Pythagoras travelled through Egypt, Central Asia, and Hindustan in search of knowledge. On his return he opened a school of philosophy in Lower Italy, about the time of Servius Tullius, or Tarquinius Cerberus. He believed in the transmigration of souls, and affirmed that he could distinctly remember several previous existences of his own. His scholars yielded him the most implicit faith, and thought it sufficient to reply to a controverting argument, himself has said it. Pluto, the supreme lord and ruler over this subterranean realm, sat there enthroned in gloomy majesty on a seat of ebony, a crown of the same wood encircling his portentous brow, and a two-pronged sceptre in his right hand. On voyages of inspection through his dominions, he rode in a chariot of dark hue, 
drawn by four jet-black steeds. No temples nor altars were ever raised to him by man, no hymns ever chanted in his praise, and strange enough, from some tacit understanding among the learned of all nations, evidently dictated by some universal, mysterious, intuitive sense of the fitness of things, the starry heavens are, even to the present day, left without a representative of his name. Yet he was acknowledged to be a powerful god, and trembling man would not dare to withhold from him the propitiatory sacrifice. The blood of black rams, split in a pit, was the peace-offering presented to him. Pluto's Lord High Treasurer and Secretary of State for the Financial Department was Plutus, the god of wealth, son of Jasius and Cyrus. We find that the ancient Greeks imputed to this god blindness and folly, which in fact would appear to have been the chief qualifications that recommended him for his high office. He was depicted lame in his approach, winged in his departure. Among the other high officers of state in Pluto's court figured more especially the three fatal sisters, Clotho, who held the spindle and drew the thread of man's life, Lachesis, who spun it, and Atropus, who cut it asunder with her relentless scissors. The three infernal judges, Minos, the lord chief justice of hell, the son of Jupiter and Europa, Wylam king and lawgiver of the Cretans, and his two assistant judges, Aeacus, the son of Jupiter and Aegina, and Radamanathus, also a Cretan lawgiver. The bestowal of the highest and most important offices of state upon the sons and nearest relatives of the chief gods affords a curious illustration of how thoroughly the ancients had moulded their gods upon the model of human nature and made them in their own image. Thus we find two out of three judgeships of hell given to sons of Jupiter, two calm chez nous. These three presided over the great interminable commission of Oyer and Terminer, an everlasting universal jail delivery, held in the Infernum. Before their dread tribunal had to appear all the shades of the departed, no appeal from their decrees. Instant execution attended their sentences. The officials upon whom devolved the execution of the judgments given by this model star chamber were presided over by three most unamiable females, holding lighted torches in their hands, and with a fanciful arrangement of snakes dangling round their heads in lieu of hair. Alecto, the never-resting, Magira, the type of envy, Tisiphone, the avenger of blood. The empire of the dead was divided into two parts, Tartarus, or hell proper, and Elysium, or the Elysian fields. Tartarus was the place of punishment assigned to the criminals condemned by the dark tribunal. Here might be seen the titans and the giants, who had dared to war against heaven's king. Here Salmonius of Elis, who had impiously attempted to imitate Jupiter's thunder by rattling his torch-lighted chariot over a bridge of brass. Here the robber Sisyphus, condemned to eternal fruitless labor of rolling an immense stone to the top of a high mountain, which it has hardly reached when it rolls down again. Here Titius, the giant offspring of earth, who had been so ill-advised as to compete with Jupiter for the possession of Latona, but was straightways cast down into hell by the indignant god. Here he covered nine acres of land, as he lay stretched on the ground, with vultures on both sides devouring his entrails, which kept on growing afresh as fast as they were eaten away. Here Ixion, tied with serpents to an eternally turning wheel, for having dared to aspire to the favors of Juno. Here Tantalus, condemned eternally to stand in water to the chin, and with abundance of pleasant fruit just at his lips, 
without the power of even once satisfying his hunger or quenching his thirst. A fearful punishment indeed, yet well deserved, for that he, to test the divinity of the gods, had killed his own son, Pelops, and set the limbs before them, baked in a pie. Here the forty-nine daughters of Danaeus, who, obedient to their father's behest, had slain their husbands on the wedding night. Hypermnestra alone of the fifty daughters of the king had spared her husband, Lynceus, and she alone was therefore exempt from the punishment decreed to her sisters, who were condemned to eternally and incessantly pour water into a tub full of holes. Elysium, on the other hand, the placid abode of peace and contentment, was assigned for the habitation of the souls of good and virtuous men, the doers of heroic deeds, and those who had rendered important services to humanity. Here the spirits of the blessed wandered in serene happiness, under a sunny and star-spangled sky, in a pure atmosphere over ever-blooming fields, and through ever-green laurel groves, continuing those pursuits and occupations in which they had delighted most in their terrestrial career. Swedenborg, the great Scandinavian dreamer and seer, in his account of the other world, tells a similar tale respecting the pursuits and occupations of the spirits of the departed. Now, however so nice this pleasant little retreat, and fit for a goddess, it would appear that none of these ladies could be persuaded by Pluto to share his throne. Finding the honor of his alliance everywhere declined, with thanks, he took at last the desperate step of carrying off to his subterranean realm Persephone, the daughter of his brother Jupiter and his sister Ceres. The bereaved mother lighted torches on Mount Etna, and incessantly, both by day and night, sought for her daughter all over the world, but in vain. Informed at last of the whereabout of her daughter by the nymph Arethusa, she descended to the infernum to claim the restitution of her child, as she decidedly objected to brimstone matches. But Persephone, won over, most likely, to Pluto by the splendor of his throne, showed no great eagerness to comply with Mama's peremptory request to instantly come out of that, and poor Ceres was obliged, as a last resource, to appeal to the justice and power of Jupiter. He decreed that Persephone should return to heaven, provided she had tasted nothing in hell. But, unfortunately, one of those busybodies who are always poking their noses into other people's affairs, one Ascalaphus, son of Acheron and Orphne, stood forward as witness on Pluto's behalf, deposing that he had seen the lady eating seven pomegranate seeds as she walked in Pluto's orchard. Whereupon, all hope of a return being gone, the angry mother touched the luckless Ascalaphus with her magic wand and enriched the tribe of owls by a new species. It would, however, appear that Jupiter, afterwards yielding to the deep grief and the incessant lamentations of his sister, granted that her daughter should only live six months in the year with her husband below, and the other six months with the gods above. Such as we have here endeavored to sketch it, in a few rapid outlines, was the kingdom of Pluto in the ideal conception of the ancient Greeks, that nation of poets. To us, alack and alas for the poetry of the thing, to us, the sons of a hard, stern, matter-of-fact age, a very different image presents itself. We still make use of the name, indeed, but the god, with all that pertained unto him, has departed for ever and ever more. Our Pluto's kingdom is the mass of liquid fire that constitutes the inner kernel of the earth. To us he is the great fire king, and he and his realm are one. It is now an almost universally received notion, by astronomers as well as by geologists, 
that this globe of ours, as indeed all other planetary bodies, once existed in a gaseous form, and was subsequently, by chemical combination of the gases constituting it, and consequent evolution of heat, gradually condensed into a glowing, fusing mass, which, being whirled round in space, ultimately assumed, under the conjoint action of gravity and the rotatory projecting impulse inherent in it, its present state an orange-shaped form, the surface or crust gradually cooling and hardening in process of time. If you wish to form some intelligible conception of the state and condition of the earth, you need simply to go to a foundry and watch the cooling of a cannonball heated to redness. As it cools, you see the surface becoming gradually covered with pellicles, or flakes of oxide of iron, whilst a touch will speedily convince you that the heat beneath the surface continues still unabated, and it is only after a certain time, when the process of cooling has extended to the inner part, that you may take up the ball without burning your fingers. Now proceed a little further. Take up a mass of cinder, or scoria, that has cooled, and break it to pieces. You will find that the inside shows streaks and veins of different materials, and presents many cavities or holes, called by foundrymen honeycomb. Reflect now that these cavities were formed in the cinder while yet in the red-hot state, either by air or by gases. Think that at the bottom of these cavities there once was floating a small drop of melted matter. Now bring your imagination into play, and let that cinder represent the earth, the cavities subterranean caverns of many hundred square miles, and the melted drop an immense lake of liquid fire, burning, boiling, heaving to the top, enlarging the cavern, melting away parts of the crust nearest to it, or swelling it up until it cracks and forms crevices and fissures for the escape of smoke, flames, and fused matter. Here you have also, at once, an intelligible theory of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. It has been demonstrated by numerous observations made in mines, and by artesian wells in various countries, that the temperature of the earth rapidly increases with the depth, but that the rate of augmentation is different at different places. In the Northumberland coal pits, for instance, one degree Fahrenheit for every forty-four feet in descent. In the lead mines of Saxony, one degree for every sixty-five feet. In the copper mines of Nochmayen, county of Waterford, one degree for every eighty-two feet. In the Dolkoth mine in Cornwall, one degree for every seventy-eight feet. Assuming the average increase of temperature to be one degree of Fahrenheit for every sixty feet of depth, and the rate of increase to remain constant, at a depth of sixty thousand feet below the surface of the earth, the temperature must stand at one thousand degrees Fahrenheit, which is that of low red heat. But as the temperature will increase with the depth in an augmenting ratio, Lenhardt assumes that the temperature of a low red heat would be attained already at a depth of thirty-five thousand feet, or double the height of the Cotopaxi, the most remarkable of the Peruvian volcanoes. Descending still lower, to depths varying from 80 to 160 miles below the surface, the temperature would be found at that depth to exceed 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, a heat sufficient to melt most of the known rocks. But considering that the dense fluid portions of the earth are most probably much better conductors of heat than the crust, it may safely be assumed that this high temperature is acquired at a still less depth. Were we to proceed down to the very center of the earth, we should there find supposing a regular rate of progression in the increase of temperature, a heat exceeding 3,500 degrees of Wedgwood's pyrometer, or something like 450,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
The solid crust of the earth is generally supposed to be only from sixty to one hundred miles thick, and it is probably even much less. That the thickness is very unequal is shown by the variation of temperature, which cannot be attributed solely to different degrees of conductibility in different parts. The process of cooling from the crust downwards is, of course, still going on, but, as has been demonstrated by Fourier, at a less rate than was formerly the case. According to the same authority, it will require 30,000 years to reduce the increase of temperature on descending into the interior of the earth from its present rate of one degree Fahrenheit for every 60 feet in descent to one-half degree. Some geological chemists have calculated from the known laws of radiation of heat that it would take 200 million years to cool the earth to its center. Another point to consider is the density of the earth. The density of the crust lies between 2.7 and 2.9, but we know from most careful and accurate pendulum experiments that the average density of the bulk of the earth is about 5.5. It is quite evident, therefore, that the ponderable matter of the interior must be very much denser than that of the crust. The generally received notion is that, assuming the radius of the earth to measure 4,000 miles in round numbers, and dividing it into ten equal parts of four hundred miles each, the density of the materials severally constituting the ten divisions increases in an arithmetical progression by about one point five for each part, which taking the density of the first annular space of four hundred miles at two point seven, gives for the second four point two, for the third five point seven, and so on, the density of the central portion being about sixteen point two. In Cordier's purely thermometrical theory as to the nature and mode of action of the great elevating force that has at successive periods raised and broken the earth's crust, lifting up various igneous or plutonic rocks and forcing them into the cracks and fissures, the central nucleus of the earth is considered in the light of an immense sea of molten mineral matter. As the solid crust continues to contract as its temperature decreases in a greater ratio than the central mass, and the velocity of rotation increases as the diameter of the globe shortens, a tendency will necessarily be induced to additional divergence from the spherical form, and the fluid matter within will accordingly press against the contracting crust, and thus produce volcanic eruptions. M. Cordier has calculated that a contraction of one over 12,350th of an inch in the mean radius of the earth would be sufficient to force out the matter of a volcanic eruption. And a most wise arrangement of the supreme intelligence it is, which has left open to King Pluto these ready means of forcing an outlet. And man ought to feel rather thankful when he beholds the flaming head of the fire king towering above the crater of some volcano. Earthquakes, surely, are much more terrible and destructive than volcanic eruptions. A volcano may be defined as a perpendicular tunnel in the earth's crust, through which heated matter from below is thrown up to the surface. The matter thrown up may be in the form of lava, scoriae, ashes, mud, etc. The tunnel or fissure is generally called the chimney, vent, or chasm of the volcano. The upper part of the chimney is called the crater. It always presents the form of an inverted cone, or the shape of a funnel with the broad part upward. A distinction is made between so-called craters of eruption and craters of elevation. Craters of eruption are formed by the boiling streams of lava, the floods of hot mud, or tuff, 
and the showers of ashes and cinders gathering or falling around the mouth of the vent or chimney of a volcano. In proportion to the continuance of the eruption and its repetition, successive beds of volcanic products will accumulate round the mouth, and form themselves into the shape of a sugar loaf or cone. Craters of elevation, on the other hand, are formed by the matter of the volcanic eruption lifting the horizontal strata in which the crater is formed, until the beds snap and rest in highly inclined planes about the mouth of the fissure. It occurs also occasionally that both kinds of craters are found in one mountain. The lava in a crater may be burning and boiling for years, without either an eruption of scoriae or an overflow of lava taking place. A multitude of small conical vents are formed, however, in such cases, which rise out of the cooled surface of the melted lava and incessantly emit volumes of smoke and sulfurous vapor. A vent of this kind is called in Europe a fumarole or moffet, and in Mexico a hornito or small oven. Other vents also are produced occasionally on the walls of the crater or on the sides of the mountain by the jets of scoriae thrown up accumulating in falling round the mouth of the vent. The number of volcanoes is very great more than three hundred of them being known to exist in the world at the present time, of which twenty-four are in Europe, eleven in Africa, forty-six in Asia, one hundred and fourteen in America, and one hundred and eight in Oceania. Most of the islands of the Pacific, and many isles of the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, are also volcanic, or else composed of volcanic rocks. The most ancient volcanoes known are Mount Vesuvius in Italy, Mount Etna in Sicily, and Stromboli, one of the Lipari Islands near Sicily. Stromboli is always burning, which has gained it the name of the Great Lighthouse of the Mediterranean. Mount Vesuvius gave its first notice of action in A.D. 73, when it did much injury to houses and villages upon its flanks. From 73 to 79 there were several small shocks, and in August of the latter year occurred that awful eruption of ashes which destroyed the cities of Herculaneum, Pompeii, and Strabiae, and caused the death of the elder Pliny. From 79 to 1036, six other eruptions of ashes, sand, and shattered fragments of lava took place. In the latter year occurred the first authentic overflow of lava, which was repeated in 1049 and 1138. After this, the mountain rested for 168 years. Another great eruption then took place in 1306, and a slight one in 1500, followed by another repose, which lasted till 1631, when a fearful eruption took place, blowing up into the air the forest of brushwood that covered the sides of the mountain and the luxuriant grassy plain at the bottom. Passing over several other eruptions of the mountain, we come to the one in October 1822, which lasted nearly a month and was attended by a series of loud detonations and explosions. Between 1800 and 1822, the vast crater formed in 1631 was gradually getting filled up with lava, cinders, and ashes, the bottom presenting a rugged, rocky plain covered with scattered blocks of lava and heaps of cinders. In this eruption of October 1822, the force from below broke up this aggregation of lava blocks at the bottom and hurled them all into the air, leaving behind a tremendous chasm, above three miles long and three-fourths of a mile across. The depth of this chasm was at first about two thousand feet, but as the walls of the crater continued to fall in, 
it became eventually reduced to less than half that depth. Previous to this eruption, the summit of the cone round the crater had been 4,200 feet high. After the eruption, its elevation was found to be reduced to 3,400 feet. Another eruption took place in 1833, and even as late as 1857 and 1858 has Mount Vesuvius given uncomfortably convincing indications that it continues as much alive as ever. End of Part 1 of Chapter 19